Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Homie Vizivdar, one of the founders of Canyon Group. You will know Homie from creating the hotel with the highest rev par, the highest EBITDA in the country, Amangiri. It is a phenomenal luxury resort. This guy fights in the face of adversity, doesn't give up, builds things where people tell him he's going to screw it up. He's going to mess it up. We heard the whole story of Amangiri, what he's focusing on now, why he is so passionate about investing in the bookends, the super high luxury, and then the low end, nothing in between, and also his new venture on experiential hospitality and how he's going to be different from everyone else. Please enjoy my conversation today with Homie Vizivdar. Homie, thanks for coming on the podcast. I wanted to start with maybe how you got started in real estate. I want to understand the journey, but maybe you can kind of weave it into how you found your place in hospitality more specifically. In 1972, I came from India and the idea was to come to Berkeley and the idea was to come here, get an education and go back. But within a week of my arriving in the United States, I decided I'll never going home again. And this is my new home. After, after my MBA from Berkeley, what happened was I did not want to join any of the big boys. You know, we, we had campus recruiting with IBMs and Bank of Americas and all that. And so, Long story short, I sort of messed around a little bit aimlessly for the first uh, year or so. And then a friend asked me to meet a man by the name of Jim Filer, who had a small construction company that specialized in renovating a hotel room or a bathroom at a time. And suddenly this man got a contract to renovate the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. And he wanted an office manager. And I thought that was pretty cool, you know, instead of selling my soul to the devil with the big corporations, I was sort of a long-haired hippie and I loved that kind of aura. So suddenly this little company, it was called Filer Brothers, became one of the most preeminent renovation contractors in the United States. Still boutique, but 
from renovating a bathroom or a room, suddenly we were renovating hotels and even providing consulting for uh, hotels for you know due diligence and stuff like that. So we renovated the Mayflower in Washington, D.C. We renovated the Plaza Hotel in, in New York for Western hotels that then became Donald Trump's hotel. And so we interacted with him, which was sort of, a, you know, interesting uh, times. The Beverly Wilshire, all the great luxury resorts. Again, dial the clock forward. Some friends of mine Prominent people in the industry said I should be an investment banker. And I said, no, no, no way. They said, with your Rolodex and with your knowledge of lodging, you should really be. And they introduced me to this boutique investment bank in San Francisco called Montgomery Securities. So I became an investment banker. Construction to investment banker. I had no clue about, but they thought that I had what it takes. So Montgomery Securities then was acquired by Nations Bank out of Charlotte, and then they acquired Bank of America. So now suddenly from a boutique investment bank, we became the 600 pound gorilla. And many, many of the folks that were at Montgomery ran for the hills and they left. So not because I was the smartest guy on the platform, but I was one of the last men standing. I became global head of lodging (laughs) for Bank of America Securities. And it was always learning on the fly. And we did some amazing projects in Greece and Pebble Beach uh, for Peter Uberoff and Clint Eastwood. And then I, I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore at the peak of my career there. And so we started Canyon about 19 years ago. So I want to go back to the construction side a little bit because it didn't seem like you had any construction experience and then you didn't have any investment banking experience. So what was it about your mindset and your entrepreneurial spirit that kind of gave you the confidence to be able to do those jobs? You, you know, you have to learn on the fly. And and so uh, I just learned. I learned about construction on the job. Although I was in administration and I was a chief operating officer, I learned everything I could possibly about construction. Then I learned everything I possibly could about design, architecture, interior design, and, and turnkey development. It's just a you know, you got to constantly reinvent yourself. And that's what I have done over my entire career is reinvent myself. So it was construction, design, development, investment banking, and now private equity. But it's always, I've been quirky and I've been contrarian and I've sort of been to places where people are afraid to tread, you know, and so everything sort of, and now I'm, I'm yesterday's news, man. I'm, you know. I don't think you're yesterday's news. Uh, we're going to get into it. But when you look back kind of over your career, what characteristics would you tell people that are most important when 
you're taking the approach of reinventing yourself or starting something new or doing an idea that everyone tells you will fail. That's interesting. You got to be, on one hand, you got to be a little cocky and, and confident. On the other hand, you have to be able to ask questions. You know, you cannot be afraid to say, I don't know. And most importantly, don't be afraid of making mistakes because you learn more from your mistakes than from your successes. And the more decisions you make, the probability that you'll make more mistakes is higher. The only thing is you got to learn from them. When you started Canyon, did you have a asset class or a focus area that you wanted to make all about the business? Or did you just start it and say, I'll figure out what I want to do now that my doors are open? Oh, no, we were very focused. The, the, the story of Canyon is very interesting. I, I was still an investment banker and a, and a really, really nice man from Germany, a German industrialist and a tycoon. His name was Christoph Hinkel, is Christoph Hinkel. He approached me and said that he has found some land in the Canyon country about two and a half hours from the Grand Canyon and next to Lake Powell. And ultimately, I went there to take a look at the land. And I was still an investment banker. And I said that this land is pretty phenomenal. And there's only one guy that can do this, and that's Adrian Zecca of Amman Resorts. And I had known Adrian for a very, very long time. And his partner, Anil Tadani, was actually my roommate at Berkeley, who then went back to Asia and did great things. So they both came and took a look at the land. And, you know, they, long story short, again, they, they looked at the land and they said that, but we like a land next door better. But the land next door was federally protected parkland. So then we had to stop the process. I left investment banking, joined Christoph Henkel, and we did a complicated swap with the feds. And for the first time ever, uh, it had to go through Congress, it had to go through the Senate, and President Bush signed a bundled bill where for the first time, I believe, that a federally protected parkland became a private resort. So then what happened was we decided, okay, let's start a company. And I said, nah, I'm not interested in a company. And Christoph said, yes, homie, we, we need a company. So then we brought on Shell Spangberg as another investor, and he was a prominent Scandinavian investor. And so we then I leaned on all my friends from years before to join us. So we became a really a tight-knit family with two investors to start with, and then a third one from Switzerland, the Fonchanau family came, and then we became this family of very experienced lodging professionals three great investors, and that's how Canyon started. And so we acquired hotels and resorts. We built them from ground up. 
And we were a very vertically integrated company. So what was it about this location that inspired you to basically build a whole company around an idea? Right. So again, you know, I was not the one that found the location. It was Christoph Henkel, actually, who found the location. But, you know, he is part of the a 50 billion euro Henkel company in Dusseldorf, Germany. But this was his private enterprise, not, nothing to do with the, the, the mothership. And he had never done a lodging deal in his life before. You know, they at that time, they owned Clorox and they owned, you know, Ecolabs and all that. They were a huge, massive company, but he loved the, the high desert. And when he found this land, we knew there was something there. But we also knew that there is a better piece of property. And that property was the federally protected parkland. And we dropped the resort into that federally protected parkland. And that became Amangiri. Then what we said is, okay, if you want to build a company, then we should acquire. So we acquired Amangani in Jackson Hole. We acquired the Amman in Courchevel, France, you know, in the French Alps. That was an Amman. We acquired the famous Cousteau Resort in Fiji. Then we built Rancho Encantado in, in Santa Fe, which was a very famous resort, but we raised the ground and built, which is now the Four Seasons Rancho Encantado. And we then accumulated land banks, which we still have in Mexico and in Costa Rica, which the company is developing now. And once again, you know, I left investment banking at the, at the absolute peak of my career and started Canyon. Then last year, b- because at that point, you can't do any better. You have reached a, a certain pinnacle. And I have a habit of walking away when I hit that pinnacle. So at Canyon, Amangiri became like the, the, the most successful hotel in the United States. It, uh, today, it's number one in the U.S., number four in the world with the Forbes rating recently. And so last year, I said, okay, I'm, I've done what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm out of here. So I handed the keys over to a younger generation, but people that I had been with for 15, 16 years in this company. So they asked me to stick around, to help them, to mentor them, to transition. And so that's, I'm doing that. So again, once, you know, I'd hit that pinnacle, I said, okay, I'm done. And I think we'll talk about maybe what you're going to focus on next, but I want to spend a little bit of time on why you decided to spend the past 20, 30 years of your life, primarily focusing on ultra luxury and what you saw from the investment banking side and maybe the construction side that drew you to that asset class. If you could even call it an asset class or category, I don't know what you want to call it. Investment, Jake, as you know, investment banking, the, the, the market, the general market thinks that investment bankers are just, you know, money-grabbing, fee-grabbing assholes. They're not entirely wrong because 
the, the investment banking mantra was the only thing that matters is the fees. You don't have to be friends with a client because if you do, do a good job, the client will come back over and over again. I, I, I was not of that mindset. I have developed a Rolodex based on friendship as well. So I felt very conflicted very often when I was asked to do a transaction which I believed was not necessarily in the best interest of the client, but the fees were enormous. And I really was incredibly conflicted over and over again. And that was another reason I decided to sort of, okay, I'm done here. Uh, the, the money is fantastic, but conscience, you know, it, it, it gets the better of you and you say, okay, you're done. And so when we were investment bankers, their opinions on small ultra luxury resorts was extremely negative. And there was a reason for that, because when you look at these small ultra luxury resorts 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the Amans, they never made any money. And I said, okay, we're going to try to be contrarians here and see if we can actually make money. So as an example, we acquired Amangani when it was doing 30% occupancy and negative EBITDA. We sold Amangani last year at north of 60% occupancy and north of almost $1,500 ADR with a massive NOI and over, we sold it at two, over two million a key. So then we, Amangiri, you know, we, we, the same thing happened. People told me over and over again that you're, you're stupid to be risking your capital, your time, and your investors' money because this asset class is just for ego and not driven by NOI. And we said that we're not in the business to stroke somebody's ego. We have to be able to make money. And we did. So we were very happy that. Amangiri, Amangani, Lemelezan, the Four Seasons, Custo, they all are, you know, somewhere from the 25 to 40, uh, 25 to 60 keys. And all of them made money. And some of them made a hell of a lot of money. So, okay. So a lot of people don't make money though on those types of hotels. So you've clearly found out a way to make money on those types of hotels. And I want to unpack that a little bit. And I'll, I'll lead off by saying, for those that don't know, I think a mutual friend of ours had the opportunity to buy Amangani maybe for $400,000 a key or $500,000 a key. It was pretty low. And maybe that's when you bought it. And now you sold it for over $2 million a key. That doesn't happen by ego. That happens by profit and good business. So I'm curious to know how you've cracked that problem. There are a lot of things that go into making these small ultra-luxury resorts, you know, touchy-feely resorts that have a very high staff 
to guest ratio of, you know, in Asia, it's five and a half to one. Here, it's about three and a half to one. So the first thing is you don't need to squeeze every dollar out of a property. So since we are not public and we're not, you know, we're not a REIT, we don't have that mindset. And so the operations becomes extraordinarily important. And it's almost invisible operations. So they are there, but they're not there. The staff is there, but they're not there. A uh, privacy becomes incredibly important. You know, we almost virtually have a no paparazzi policy at our resort. Today, the biggest difference between 25 years ago and today is the social media. PR, social media, it is huge. 25 years ago, the owners, the chairman of many of the small ultra luxury resorts felt their egos got in the way and they said, nobody can talk about the resort when they come to. And that's why they were running 30% occupancy. Today, if somebody goes to a resort and puts it, you know, influencers go and put, they put it on social media, celebrities go and those that choose to put that on Instagram, they do. And as a result, there is an incredible buzz created. But buzz is not enough because when people come, you gotta treat them well, you know? So the operations become extraordinarily important. The location is important. You know, th there's a lot of stuff that goes into creating an ultra luxury resort. And, you know, like all the stars have to align because it is still a very risky business. And still, when you look at it, and I'm not at liberty to say, but it, when you look at some of these ultra luxury resorts around the world, I would say that probably 75% of them make very little money or no money. It's fascinating. It, it is fascinating. It is it is really crazy that some of the smartest people in our business said, this is not a good model. It's those very same people now that are calling and begging for a room at either Amangani or Four Seasons or, you know, uh, Amangiri. So it, it's kind of interesting. And they still look at me as this quirky dude who, who, who defied the odds. When you first saw the site, that was to be Amangiri or the the first site and then you did the land swap, I guess Adrian Zecha, Aman immediately popped into your mind. Why was that? Because at that point in time, Adrian, he was a genius. He was a true visionary, okay? And everybody talked about Adrian Zecha and and you you look at uh, you know what he has created he was truly a visionary and he could spot land he would go to a property and i went to properties with him and within 3 minutes he could tell you whether you could build an aman or not so he was a phenomenal visionary he's the one along with Ed Tuttle, who was his main designer and architect who died 
during the pandemic, these guys learned to create something phenomenal. The problem was they did not know how to effectively create a revenue model. And it was, I mean, Adrian is a friend, but he really did not focus on the owner's desire to make money. For him, it, the brand creation was more important. Then a few years ago, Vlad Doronin acquired Aman Resorts, and he used Adrian's vision as a springboard. But Vlad's mindset was, if you don't make the owners happy, there's no point in running a business. So he completely turned the business around. He hired a ton of people for in PR, marketing, social media. There's a lady in London at Amman. Her name is Anna Nash. She is like a genius when it comes to image building and her team. And he put a lot of money into creating a better revenue model. Number one. Number two, his brand extension. Adrian had the ideas, but he couldn't execute brand extensions. Now, Vlad Doronin has done all of that great stuff. City Amans, Adrian always wanted to do City Amans, but he kept tripping over himself. And so now Vlad Doronin has Tokyo, he has New York, he's going to have Beverly Hills, he's going to have Miami. So from a sort of a very myopic method of operating Aman Resorts in the past, under Doronin, this has become a real business. And most people, most of the Aman owners are pretty thrilled with what is happening now. So you had a front row seat to this entire transition. And I'm wondering at the hotels that were Amans that you had, what did you feel changed on the property during the transition? It didn't happen overnight, but what changed? Because it's hard to shift a mentality like that, particularly from the GMs on property, the staff, the people in the back office. What did you feel during that period? There was a lot of pain. I mean, uh, you know, when Vlad started, he, he hired some people and then it was a revolving door. And even as recently as probably a month ago, the old uh, chief operating officer left, and now we have a new chief operating officer at Amman. And so it didn't happen overnight. It, there was a lot of pain involved because the transition was very, very difficult, right? There was, you know, I mean, it's all, it's all out in the public anyway, the, the fights that took place. And Daronin prevailed because at the end of the day, he was in the right. I mean, you know, love him or hate him, he was on the right. And that, that was a very difficult transition. He had to change the mindset. Just as we did with Amangiri and, and Amangani, he had to change people's mindset that these 
kinds of resorts are capable of making money. These kinds of resorts are capable of selling residences at very, very high price per square foot. And that's what he did. He changed the culture, the economic culture of a small luxury resort. You kind of glossed over the complexity of the land swap and how you actually found the exact location of Amangiri, where it sits today. How, how did you even like think that you could possibly convert and swap one piece of land for another that was federally controlled? And how long did that take? Surprisingly, it didn't take very long, but we had a lot of people in in Utah, we had you know the senators there helping us. They were I mean, we, and then Governor Huntsman at that time. He was the governor post land swap, and when he was ambassador uh, under Bush senior to Singapore, he became aware of the Yaman brand there in Singapore. And when suddenly there was going to be an Yaman in his state. Man, he freaked out. He, uh, he he is so fantastic. And so anytime we had an issue or a problem, all I had to do was call Huntsman. And we didn't cross any lines, but he really supported us, as did the senators, as did the congressmen. And, and it was surprisingly fast. So, you know, it was like a three-year process. Can you describe Amangiri to those that may not know it or may not have been there? <laughs> oh, man. The best thing um, to do is just to look at the pictures, and that just says it all. Exactly. Yeah, you look at the pictures. But even people that look at the pictures and then go there, they go, holy shit, this is nothing. The, the pictures don't do justice, right? It's completely isolated. Yes, it's yet it's close to everything. You're looking like almost like a miniaturized Grand Canyon tucked away, and it's surreal. You know, there are solid rock formations, sand, moving sand dunes. It, it, it's it's Mars. <laughs> Some people have called it Mars, and you know the resort that was designed. Adrian at that time made us build a wall, tear it down, build a wall tear it down. The concrete tint had to blend in with the environment. There was so much attention to detail, it was crazy. It's a very hard project, by the way. Yeah, it, it just it's in the middle of nowhere, for those that don't know. It's so remote. How did you have confidence that you could have success in such a remote environment. By the way, when you were dreaming this up with the team, nothing like this really existed in the United States in a way that you have it today. Not this remote, not this high end, just nothing. So how did you have the confidence that you could, could succeed like that? Well, it was. it's just not about confidence. It's all, there are a lot of things that go into it. You know, it's not my confidence. I was just the arm waver. Right, I had three amazing investors who had faith, and, and all three of them high net worth. I had a team that was just absolutely phenomenal, and and they're they were so much smarter than me, and they made me look good. 
But at the end of the day, you don't know. And when enough people tell you that, homie, you're, you're gonna, this, this is, this is going to get so badly fucked up. You're, you're, you're gonna regret it. You start wondering, what the hell am I doing? But then you wake up in the morning and say, today's a new day and we're going to make this work. But you can, you know, you can wave your arms and say, Hey, this is, this is going to be fantastic. Uh, we are process guys. We had HVS out of San Francisco do the feasibility. And in my opinion, you know, Suzanne Mellon, who was one of the founders of HVS with the Rushmore, I asked her, because I'd all, always leaned on Suzanne as an investment banker as well. And so I asked her, I said, Suzanne, will you go to the site and take a look and tell me, am I being just completely stupid about this? And she went there and she did a complete feasibility with her team. And it was like, if you build it, they will come. That was validation. Now, her performa was, I, I, I think it was like 56% occupancy at $900 ADR. Yeah, but, but she did say, if you build it, they will come. And based on that feasibility, we had a bank that said, because HVS has validated this, we're going to lend you the money. The investors went, wow. HVS has validated this. Okay, here's the equity. So things came together. A lot of people played major, major roles in that. And, and all I was was just a traffic cop, you know, trying to put all the pieces together. There were, there were tons of people around me that made this work. What would surprise people about what you learned in designing a resort like that, whether it's the location, the orientation, sacrifices that you have to make? Yeah, so again, we what happened was we, instead of hiring the usual Amman designers like Gary Hill and Ed Tuttle, th those are the two. And then there were some other, you know, like Jean-Michel Gatti. It was decided that there were there was a group of three architects, the leader being Rick Joy, who was the Smithsonian architect, and he went to the White House to get his award. So he was the lead. And then there was Marwan Al-Sayed, an Iraqi dude, phenomenally talented again in the interiors part of it, and also in the, in the architecture. So they came together to design this. It was a horrific struggle because they'd never designed a hotel before. And we guys knew lodging, but, and Adrian was directing them and Adrian never gave a rat's ass about the owner's budgets. You know, uh, the budget was unlimited and yet they exceeded it. <laughs> it was, it was insanely crazy, but Adrian directed them, and the genius of it was we thought that because we had so much land, this could be individual casitas for privacy. But the architects and, and Adrian decided that it had to be more of a butterfly 
uh, so if you look at Amangiri from you know the top an aerial view you'll see that it's sort of a butterfly and we have 900 acres and we said why is that the case and man were we wrong and were they right you know that's not to say we didn't have we we had horrific problems in developing you know, it's no pain no gain and we had to part ways with a lot of the consultants we had to fire them during the job it was very tough and like i say for about five years many of us at canyon didn't even feel like going back to amangiri because it just was such a difficult project and, and then over the over the years we looked we looked at it and went like yeah we did something really special <laughs> at the time when you made the investment and you saw the HVS study, how did you think about the investment returns? Could the revenue justify the cost of the project at that time? Or were you betting, we're gonna have to hold this thing for 30 years and hopefully at the end we'll make money? We really, we were shooting in the dark, Jake. We were hoping that at the very least, we could hit the numbers that HVS had predicted. You know. And if we could do single digit IRRs, you know, I think we would have been happy campers. So never in our wildest dreams did we imagine that we would have the uh, 10 years later or 12 years later, we would have the highest EBITDA per key of any hotel or resort in the United States. Breaking glass barriers is really important because when See, when you go to the debt markets, for example, and I will tell you, you know, a, a shout out to KSL. So Mike China and I were friends from the day he founded KSL. And KSL financed Amangiri in later years. Now think about it. You know, when you're 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 giving us 50, 60, 70 million dollars on 34 keys, their investment committee goes, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, nobody has loaned anybody that kind of per key dollars. No hotel would probably have been even worth that amount on a total basis at that time. Absolutely. And so they went like, seriously? And, you know, Mike Shannon was, he he was also he was a very practical visionary right and his guys you know uh, craig henrik and guys uh, hal shaw they all looked at amangiri and i said don't look at the debt per key look at the yield and then at a 5 or 6 cap look at the valuation and you are at 30% ltv they did it the first time, then they did it the second time, the third time, and then they got comfortable with it. Now, when you look at this, there are, you know, Blackstone does these kinds of deals, MSD, with whom we just did a deal. They, they're, they're very comfortable doing these high debt and per key deals. I think, I don't know if we were the pioneers, but I would like to think that we set the ball rolling for these types of projects. And, and now when you, you know, like 
we were we were in Cabo San Lucas, and somebody said, "Hey, take a look at this hotel in Todos Santos." Went there, took a look. Shit, they tried to mimic Amangiri. I don't have a problem with that. I'm happy that somebody, you know, uses Amangiri. Or we'll see some, you know, the monumentality of Amangani, the entrance and the whole area that Ed Tuttle had done. It's the only hotel ever designed by Ed Tuttle in the United States, Amangani. That monumentality people seem to mimic, which is okay. In, in fact, when, when architects, owners, architects come there and try to surreptitiously take pictures, we say, don't do that. Come with us. We'll, we'll take you everywhere, take pictures, do whatever you want. We are happy to show you. You know, uh, it, it's, it's great. It's an accolade for us. Were there certain decisions that you made on the design or how you thought about the amenities that looking back on it were iconic and legendary and would have, if you had done it differently, it would have completely changed the trajectory of Amangiri? Yeah. The, the, like I said, it was the contiguous, you know, instead of individual casitas, or, or, it was the contiguous rooms. But look at it the other way. Where we screwed up, Amon, Six Senses, the, you know, there are very, very few of these brands in the world, right? There's Amon, there's Six Senses, there's Cheval Blanc, possibly Rosewood. You know, there aren't that many brands that can generate this kind of EBITDA. But what happened was the perception in the marketplace was that Amon is a couple's retreat. The very first summer, May of 2010, we opened October 2009 in the middle of the friggin' meltdown. And the very first summer, we had 70% of our visitation was families. And we had to pivot very, very quickly and break open some of the concrete walls for connector rooms and build a guest house uh, for, you know, maybe for celebrities that want complete privacy because we have a central core at, at the Amans, whether it's an Amangani or Amangiri. And those central cores, everybody congregates there. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be, you know, Joe Smith, or you can be, I'm going to throw out a name, a couple of names. You know, you can be the Kardashians. You can be, you know, doesn't matter. You can be anybody. You can be a Zuckerberg. You can be a Tim Cook. So it's not like you have your own little privacy area. Everybody congregates in the center. But people were coming with children. And that's why of, during the pandemic, we, we decided to experiment once again with Camp Sarika. Why the hell does a tent in South Africa or East Africa, in Tanzania, Kenya, you know, or in Dunk Island in Australia, or Latitude in Australia, why do these tents demand $9,000 a day? And that's something that always sort of, and, and I, that we experimented. I experimented and I screwed up more often than you can imagine. We built teepees that were a big bust. Uh, we did all kinds of weird stuff until we hired this 
group out of South Africa, uh, Luxury Frontiers, and Graham Labby, who is a great architect, to design tents for us. But, but the mandate was, you got to design something that's never, ever been designed before. Just like the mandate to Rick Joy was, and Marwan Al-Sayed, you know, in 2005-06, that you have to design a hotel that's never been designed before. Same thing, you have to design a tent that's never been designed before. And they came up with these one-bedroom, two-bedroom tents, and we had 10 of them with its own public areas. And holy shit, we, during the pandemic, we opened them. And we ran practically 100% occupancy at some, at a crazy, we had like north of $5,000 ADR. And these tents now have become really well-known and famous and being written about all the time. So that was our proof of concept. So we think that the future of luxury is experiential luxury. It's, again, you have AutoCamp and you have, you know, under canvas, great products, but they cater to the mid market. There is this gaping hole in our industry for experiential luxury in, in the Americas that has been a proven concept in Asia and Africa. And our mindset now at Canyon is we're going to do more tented camps. And we've identified certain demographics, obviously the Canyon country, the wine country, you know, Yosemite, you know, parks, just at the entrance of parks, strong demographics with high barriers to entry again. And we're going to do this. So then we went around the world looking at who's the best, what's, who, who are great operators. And we looked at many phenomenal operators. And ultimately, it, we just kept coming back to IG. You know, I, I was just fascinated by two guys there, Keith Barr, who was the CEO who's just stepped down, and Bob Chitty, their you know, head of development in Atlanta. And I just kept, we started talking and it was very vibrant and exciting. So I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we take the six senses that, and they own the six senses brand, which is a little bit, it's like Amman, but it's not as successful as Amman yet, but it has a massive wellness component that distinguishes itself from the pack. So we said, why don't we take six senses, but soft brand a tented product? And they thought that was a pretty interesting idea. And, you know, Neil Jacobs is the CEO of six senses out there in Singapore and Bangkok. And we talked to Neil about it. And we said, what do you think if we do a blank, a name by six senses? And now we've slowly started to develop a great relationship with IAG. They seem to be really dynamic. For, you know, we have a lot of great public companies in, in the U.S. You know, I mean, Tony Capuano, who took over from, you know, Arnie, is phenomenal, you know. Nasetta, Hilton. At, Hilton, Chris, is, they, they are all in their own way 
they are phenomenal. Pritzkers, you know, Hyatt. In fact, Jay Pritzker was like, I'm an old dude. So my mentors really in this business were people like Jay Pritzker, Bob Burns, George Raphael, Adrian Zecca with Regent, you know. Those are the kind, I, I, I sort of learned at their doorstep, the world of lodging. So I think now is a great time to transition from a bricks and mortar product, which we will continue to do. I'm sure Canyon will continue to do that, but to this experiential model. And I love that idea, you know, so that's what we're going to do. All right. So I want to unpack that a little bit, because when I think of Amangiri, I th- not the tented part, the main part, I think of experience, but that's in a building. There's walls and concrete and a well-defined pool and a lobby and public areas. What latitude does a tent give you that you don't have in the bricks and mortar experience? And then what do you need to take from the bricks and mortar experience and put in the tent experience to make it work? I, that's a fantastic question, Jake. Really, they, they're both experiential, right? But the experience is a little bit different in a tent because you are almost one with the nature, more so in the tent than in a bricks and mortar. External experiences you can have at both sides. For example, you know, you can have the horseback riding, you can have the equestrian and the rock climbing and all that stuff. You can have it both places. But the tent creates an aura. It creates an environment that is more one with the nature. And it's a little quirky, right? It's people go... There are people at Amangiri that stay at Camp Sarika that say they'll never stay at the main resort ever again. And these are major, major celebrities because they're, they're so enamored by the tents. I think it's the environment is a little different in a tent than in a bricks and mortar. They're both one, wonderful products, but it's just a little bit different. It feels like an it's adventure. Quirky. One of the greatest experience I've had was going to the tents at Singida in Tanzania and experiencing that. It was just magical. Those guys have written the book on it, right? Luke Bales at Singida, what he has done to the tented world. He was a trailblazer. So when, and oh, Bicky Oberoi in India, those tents in Ranthambore, just incredible. And I leaned on them. I said, what do you think I should be doing? I'm, I want to do, you know, and, and, and I was like a sponge. You know, Vicky would say, okay, this is how it works. And the one thing that the folks at Singita Oberoi said was, do not build a floppy tent, which you, which only go up in season and then you take them down in the winter, build a tent that is 11 and a half months so that two weeks are to treat the canvas. This was a very harsh environment at Amangiri. The, it's a, the soil conditions are very different than, say, Costa Rica or you know the Caribbean. So our tents had to be engineered in South Africa 
where they could withstand high winds, snow, you know, dusting of snow, and a, over 110 degree heat. All of that stuff had to happen. So Amangiri was very difficult, the Camp Sarika. But if you do the tented product in Costa Rica, you do the tented product in the wine country in California, even places like Charlottesville on the eastern seaboard or in the Hamptons, it's not going to be as expensive as the desert, as the high desert. On the real estate side, there's a couple interesting things about a tent. I would think there might be advantages to land because you have more selection. So you could maybe get the land a little bit more cost effectively. And I would also think building the tent is less than building a structure in a very remote area. Is that, am I thinking about that in the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, we we did spend a million dollars and more, a tent, a one and two bedroom tent at Amangiri. But that also included a lot of the, the experimental dollars and, you, you know, the earlier on what Subsequently, if if you want to look at it from 50,000 feet, it costs about half of what it would cost for a bricks and mortar to build a tent, and the ADR is practically double. So the model really does work extraordinarily well, so long as you design and develop correctly. And from an amenity standpoint, you mentioned some of the mid-market stuff. I think a lot of competitors that came out during COVID had very few amenities, no public space, no services. That's not the approach you're going to take. What amenities and services do you think are critically important in a tent and experiential environment? So our first project, I believe, is going to be in the Canyon country. Now, you've been to Tanzania and you, you've seen the Rift Valley, right? So if you look at Amangiri, you're down looking up. The first project that we are going to do on the experiential side is we're going to call it Camp Korongo. Korongo in Swahili means canyon. So it's going to be Camp Korongo by Six Senses. That is just like the Rift Valley in Africa. And we're going to cantilever the tents all on the on the edge. And you're looking at the Grand Canyon, looking at the at Bryce, you're looking at Zion. It's a pretty amazing. So that's going to be the the first one. We think that that's going to be the very first one. How have you learned to solve the problem for finding people to work at these hotels in such remote locations, and then building the infrastructure to support the hotels? Laundry, horribly difficult. It takes a long time and a lot of turnover until you can. Amangani again was a great example where, you know, they opened, we bought the hotel. We did not develop it, but we bought it. Adrian developed it. It took a lot of turnover to create a core, a very strong core group. And then the rest, you know, they come and they go and they have the J1s and the H1Bs and, you know, there's transfer from, from other Amans and things like that. Same thing with Amangiri. We created a very strong core group and 
actually, the funny story is that the general manager at Amangiri was Julian Serge. Julian was so phenomenal. And after creating the best resort, after managing the best resort in the United States, he said, where the hell do I go from here? And I don't want to be in operations. Now I want to be on the principal side. And so he threatened to quit. And I said, don't quit. Come and work for us. So he joined us a year ago. So yes, it's very, very hard to find. It's hard to find personnel, staff, but it's even harder to then train them with the mindset of service, high service, invisible service. And none of them are allowed to talk about the guests. So at our Four Seasons in, you know, in Santa Fe, let's say there is a rock star who is performing all over and she goes back to the Four Seasons between performances or at Amangiri, you know, where uh, one of the Beatles performs in the Western United States. But then between performances, he goes there to sort of kick back and relax and nobody is going to bother him. That's the beauty of these resorts. They attract people who know that they can be totally totally alone and not be bothered. And the staff are trained in such a way that they just don't easily talk about who's there. I want to like hang on that a little bit because that's interesting, not from the staff side, but from the guest side. So we just got back from Europe and we stayed in some, you know, crazy, amazing hotels. And at two of them, there was a real sense of community between the guests. So you'd go and have a drink before dinner and you'd be sitting next to someone and you start having a wonderful conversation and meet someone from across the world and you know quickly become vacation friends and, and have this wonderful experience. I've been to some Amans in Asia and I don't think that that's the vibe. I think it is a little bit more reserved. Do you try and cultivate some sort of community whether it's at the tented camp or at Amangiri? And do you think that's effective or is it better to keep it pretty quiet and separate? No, I like the sense of community. The, that was Adrian's original dream, to create a sense of community. Now, take a look at Amanpuri in Thailand. All the villa owners know each other. They have been together for Lord knows, 30 years. You know, there have been some turnover. And and I was there, you know, about a few months ago. Uh, it, it was so wonderful, you know, because all the villa owners know each other. They party in each other's villas. And they are a broader, in the broader sense, they are family. I think that's an aberration. Because it's very hard to create a sense of community this way, where when we build our residences, Canyon's residences at Amangiri, I wish we could build that sense of community, but that that magic 
evolves on its own. And we cannot force that into the residences. So we'll see how it works because, you know, if there is, there are, it's mostly going to be obviously Wall Street, Hollywood, Texas oil and gas, Silicon Valley. And there are guys that are going to say, I, I want a special security system. I don't want to see anybody. This is my getaway. So then, you know, it, it takes time for things like this to evolve. It took a long time at Amanpuri, but they could never really replicate it elsewhere. So you are absolutely right. It's hard. How important is residences to ultra luxury properties today? Incredibly important. Again, Amangiri is an aberration, okay? Because we sort of, <laughs> we were almost at 25 million NOI on 30, 34 keys and 10 tents, which is kind of absurd. But again, I'm, I'm generalizing, but a resort, if you can build a resort, and if you can get single-digit IRRs, let's say an 8% IRR, you know, 6 to 8%, I think you've done well, generally speaking. Now, you create the residences, and that 8% IRR suddenly jumps to 25 30 35%. But what that does is it creates elasticity of key count for those people that choose to put their villa back into the pool, into the rental pool. So it's accretive to the resort. It is great for the owners because they get revenue. And it's fantastic for the owners of the resort as well, like, like Canyon. So everybody goes home happy. Now, getting those buyers is a needle in a haystack. You know, in New York and Miami, they sold out in no time at all at incredibly absurd prices per square foot. We heard numbers like anywhere from 6,000 a square foot to $14,000 a square foot, right? Miami sold out in, a, in 30 days. So it's a little harder to sell Aman Yara and Turks and Caicos, you know, they did phenomenally well in the first phase of their residences. Aman Zoe in Greece, again, you know, they sold. So we'll see how we do. We go to the market, I believe, in about two months. The They've been designed, and Aman has a short list of people, as do we. And these are some pretty interesting people. So we'll see. So it's a chicken and an egg kind of idea though. So in your new venture with the tents, are you going to try and do residences from the beginning? Or do you think you need to build this sense and vibe and hype and then layer the residences on later on? Again, we were very lucky because we had three investors, high net worths, that were patient. And therefore we could build a resort and then make the resort successful. So there's a there there. You know, in the beginning, Amangiri, there was no there there. You know, it was a resort, like you said, in the middle of nowhere. 
And now there is that buzz. So this is a good time to go to the market for the residences. And we'll, we'll see how that works. I want to switch now to kind of the, the capital side and the investing side. And you've seen every real estate cycle for past 40 years. How have you learned to invest and stay afloat during real estate cycles? So I'm, I'm, here, here is my thought process on this. I lived through, you know, 9-11, where we had a massive book of business with lodging at uh, Bank of America Securities. And what we did after 9-11, when the world pretty much came to an end, was we went to every single major borrower whether we were doing a high yield or just straight mortgage lending on the investment bank side. And we said, tell us what you want. You know, what can we do to help? As opposed to, oh my God, what the hell are you going to do? We had, now it's been a long, long time, but we had one foreclosure during 9-11. That's it. So we were very proactive. The same way, you know, subsequent to that, when you try to get equity for a high-risk product, like a small ultra-luxury or boutique hotel, it is, again, a needle in a haystack. Wealthy people, first of all, getting wealthy people to invest is one thing. Getting wealthy people who collaborate is a completely different because by virtue of being wealthy, they think they have all the answers. Right. And then once you have, you know, this happens more so in Asia, surprisingly, than in the US, you'll get some dude who is a billionaire and then his wife has an opinion and his sister has an opinion and his grandmother has an opinion and they drive you to friggin, you know, hell and back. So getting the most appropriate people is also very, very hard. I've been, I've been in incredibly lucky to have people like, you know, like a Henkel, because not only did they become investors, but they all became friends. That's not to say that we, we agreed with everything. We fought like hell, you know, good fights, you know, vibrant fights, you know, intellectual disagreements and stuff like that. So even today, it's a lot easier today because, you know, again, going back to 9-11, after 9-11, after SARS, after the, the meltdown, the economic meltdown in 2008, and the recent meltdown, what happens? The ultra-luxury market is the first one to come roaring back. Always take a look, go back, and see it's a pattern. But only now have people started to realize that. And that's why coming out of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, Sunstone stepped up and bought the Four Seasons here in Napa Valley before it even opened at over two, two million a key. There you go. Finally, people are beginning to realize that. You know, MSD is is doing a lot of incredible work in the luxury, in the ultra luxury. 
so not to mention sovereign funds, right? The Qataris and then PIF uh, in Saudi Arabia. Some of the Emiratis have sort of slowed down the process like Adia and others, but the Qataris are very aggressive, you know, and as, as is PIF. I presume you're going to raise capital for your new tented camp. Yes. So what do you think the investor profile looks like for an investment such as that? Now that we've done it, there's a little bit of credibility. On one hand, there's credibility. On the other hand, they go like, homie, shit, you're, you're an old dude. You know what? But by the time these, the, it comes to total fruition, you're probably going to be dead and gone. And so that's what you have. And you've got to tell them that, no, there's a younger group now that, that we have mentored and that, that are going to step up and all that kind of stuff. It, it's not going to be easy, Jake. I can tell you that. Now, somebody like an IAG says, okay, let's raise 200, let's just throw out numbers. Let's raise $200 million of equity. And we will be your co-GP and we'll seed this with $50 million or $20 million. That's all you need. Once you have that GP in place, you've created credibility. One of the largest and most dynamic hotel companies in the world, along with a boutique little company like ours, but that have done this. And that creates credibility. Now, the question then becomes on the LP side, what's the profile of the LPs? And the profile really is smaller tranches, you know, two and a half to $5 million tranches, which is manageable. And as time goes by, you know, we can increase those tranches as we, as the credibility grows. I think it shows incredible wisdom to go from a company like Amon and then say you want to do your next venture with IHG, which would be on the opposite side of the spectrum. Now, sure, it's with six senses, but it is owned by IHG. A lot of people in our industry do have ego and probably wouldn't have made that decision. They would have said, oh, I'm going to find a guy in South Africa that makes a tent and manages 10 tents in his grandmother's backyard, and we're going to build a brand around it. What, what have you learned over your career that kind of gave you the insight to go and take a risk with someone like IHG, who is also Holiday Inn, to do this new concept? You're so damn right, because look at IHG, right? You can, I mean, the Holiday Inn Express, what a phenomenal brand it is. Just think about it, you know? And, and when the world comes to an end, usually with these economic downturns, what survives? The, the, the select service and the ultra luxury and everything in the middle gets crushed. So just think about, you know, Marriott, for example, take, Arnie had done, you know, you had your select service and then you had your rich reserve. They tried to take rich reserve, tried to slap on an Amman template. They, they couldn't quite cross that barrier. And therefore they wanted the 80 keys and the 100 keys. And, and we're not that, we're not that. 
we think that this product that we are, and by the way, let's, let's be very clear. The company Canyon, the Canyon Group, is not opposed to doing other amans. In fact, we're looking at a couple of other incredible properties that could be a complete bricks and mortar aman. Or, absolutely. So we've always been brand agnostic. This time around, we think that if we are going to do experiential research, it's better to align ourselves with somebody like an IEG. And always, when you look at IEG and you look at Six Senses, when they acquired Six Senses from Pegasus, they promised Neil Jacobs, the CEO of Six Senses, that they will not in any way, that IEG will not be dilutive to the ultra luxury component. And that's why Six Senses is virtually autonomous. And Keith Barr and, you know, left Six Senses alone and Neil Jacobs and his team really manage it. That's why they've got an impressive pipeline and they're, they're going places like you wouldn't believe, Jake. So what do you think the biggest challenge is going to be in replicating or enhancing Camp Sarika in this new venture, in this new idea throughout the country? Yeah, Camp Sarika, again, is an aberration. We, we did it once. Amangiri is an aberration. You know, you, you don't, this is once in a lifetime. And I was very fortunate and lucky to have done that. But these tents that we're talking about, the experiential, the tents, the room product is going to be tents. The public areas are going to be bricks and mortar. And the residences are, uh, residential product is also bricks and mortar. So we'll see. They're not going to be quite the, that Camp Sarika stature, at least we don't think so. It's like when Schrager, you know, when Ian created Schrager Hut and, and we thought that the Hudson in New York is not quite going to be a Mondrian and shit, those rooms were like telephone booths. And we started at, a, a, I think, $199 that was a, that was a projected ADR. Within the first month of opening, Ian was generating $400 ADR. So you never know, you know, you never know in our industry. Uh, the, the, again, that's, that's another, you know, all these guys are so phenomenal in what they do that, I'm just in awe of them. Yeah. So I want to bring it home with one area which we didn't touch on today, and th that is a limited service hotel that you developed in Utah. And I'll tell you a story. So a friend of mine went to a wedding at Amangiri, and he said, you know, Jake, this guy homie is a genius, okay? He had this multi-million dollar wedding that was hosted at Amangiri. And then down the road, all the support people for the wedding, the band, the photographers, the catering people, wh whoever it was, the security, they stayed in this other hotel and it was sold out. No one could get in. Um, yeah. <laughs> so again, yeah, 
what happened there was it was almost like a dare. You know, people were saying, shit, homie, you, you don't know anything about select service. And, and I said, look, I can learn. So, so the team here at Canyon came to me a few years ago, many years ago, and said, we should do select service. And then others started laughing. And, and some very prominent CEOs of hotel companies started In fact, I don't, God rest his soul, Arnie. He started laughing. He said, oh, are you serious? Mahmood Kimchi. All these guys started laughing at me again. And I said, I'll show all of you. And so one of the guys at our company had done select service before. And so I said, let's learn everything we can about select service. And we did not pick Marriott and we did not pick Hilton, not because we didn't want to, but there was there were issues with other competing products and stuff like that. And I like Hyatt because a Hyatt is a Hyatt is a Hyatt. You know, there's no confusion with brand. But we wanted, I said, there's only one condition. We we found land in Page, Arizona not that far from Amangiri. And we said, we have to be market leaders. There were over 2,000 select service skis and are in, in Page, Arizona, because it's the gateway to the Canyon country. Over 12 million people pass through that every year. And I said, we have to be the market leaders. And so we had the hired guys there and they were scratching their heads and they're going like, Jesus, homie, you don't, you shouldn't be spending this much money. It's a hired place for crying out loud. I said, no, but we, we gotta be nice. We gotta be great. We are, I mean, by a long, long shot. I don't know the metrics anymore, but we are the market leaders. Our RFPAR penetration, our ADRs, and we are way above anybody else in page. And we learned it on the fly. I wanted to know everything. Now, if somebody says, homie, can you build a select service? Shit, yes, I could do it. <laughs> so what were the things that you did to make yourself the market leader? Was it just in the physical product? You know what, Jake? I'll tell you. It, the physical product was great. Yes. I mean, you know, there are guys from Hyatt, senior guys from Hyatt that came and said, wow, this is, this is, not, a, this is not a Hyatt place. Well, we did the other things, you know, we we introduced the concept of music. We are in the lobby, you know, we had a much better food and beverage operation. But the one thing that we did was we hired a PR company and we said, select service hotels don't individually hire PR companies. We said, we want a PR company and we want you to blast this thing coming out of the pandemic and even before the pandemic. And the social media buzz that the Hyatt Place created was pretty phenomenal. You know, so we sort of, again, we, you, you know, you shoot in the dark and you throw up the balls and whatever lands, lands, right? So, yeah. Now, I mean, I, I've sort of stepped down as the CEO. There's a new sheriff in town at the company. Uh, Robert, he is the CEO of Canyon, and he, you know, he he's been with me in on my investment banking days all the way through to Canyon. They should be doing more of these. I I really think that Select Service is an incredible business model.
And you know, I'll tell you, the Hyatt place, the investors in the Hyatt place were not necessarily the same investors that were at Amangiri. They were there, but there was, I mean, you know, there were guys like Jay Shah, for example. He said, shit, I'll, I'll invest, but we didn't allow anybody to invest more than $250,000. And they said, what the fuck is this? I mean, you want us to invest and you don't want us to invest more. And I said, no, because if, if we fail, then I don't want you to lose a whole lot of money. The next one around, we may, we, we may up this. Hopefully they'll do more of this because it's the best, the bookends is the best business model. You have the ultra luxury and you have the select service and that's what succeeds over and over and over again in the long term. So is there a specific market that you would tell your guys to focus on for select service? I'm not talking about like a state or a city, but like, what is the kind of dynamic? Because you could easily get into a commodity situation and not be able to differentiate yourself. Totally. I mean, first of all, we are just small timers, right? Some They're the big boys that, that'll eat us alive. I would still say entrance to the state and national parks, college. You know, that's a, that's a unbelievably great model. I ask all guests on the podcast the same closing question. I'm probably most excited about your answer. Sorry to everyone that came before, but that's the truth. I am. And this is, what is your favorite hotel? Not of your own portfolio, of any hotel in the world. What is your favorite hotel? You don't have to pick one. There are two answers. The favorite hotel is the one that I'm going to build next. We love uh, Luang Prabang, the Aman there. That that's a phenomenal hotel. Longitude thirty one is it in in Australia? That that's that's just gorgeous. We we also my wife and I we we've been going to Lake Como for many many years. You know, Villa Diesta is is a, one of our f- favorites. Yeah, I will say that my all time favorite resort is Vanya Villas in India, at, in Rajasthan, it's the Oberoi Hotel. I think Oberoi is probably, Oberoi never came to the United States, but I still think it's the best, it's the best ultra-luxury operator in the world. What do they do so well? Staff. Again, staff. It's, it's just, they are so incredibly well-trained. The difference between staff in different parts of the world is in the Western world, staff react by rote. In Asia and in Fiji, where we have, a, it's from the heart. It's, it's in their soul, hospitality. And therein lies the difference. That's why they say, you know, Asian hospitality is very different from American or European hospitality. It's from their, it's in their soul. And there's no other way of explaining it. I agree, 100%. That's an amazing place to end it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Jake. I love this. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay I'll see you in the next episode. 
Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.